And uh, so, I'm sorry, we will, uh, then this week, we, we're going to be covering a total of nearly uh, two centuries of history, so we're going to have a lot of material to cover. We'll see what we can do with that. Um, today we're going to be covering the period of the monarchs uh, of the 16th century that belonged to the House of Tudor, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the House of Stuart up until 1689, and hopefully we'll get to uh, introduce a little bit of the activities that happened that led up to the adoption of the 1689 Confession. So we'll start with Henry VIII, who was the second in line of the Tudor kings. Uh, he came to the throne in 1509, uh, and he was married for the first time that same year. Uh, and this, by the way, was also the year that John Calvin was born. And it would be eight years uh, later, in 1517, that Luther would post 95 theses and spark the Reformation in Germany and beyond. Um, well, we mentioned Henry's first marriage, but it's well known that Henry had six wives. And the reason for this is in many ways at the heart of the events that brought about the Reformation in England. And so we'll begin then by looking at Henry's wives. I had a chart, um, but uh, I'll just uh, mention to you that these six wives uh, were, um, three of them were Catherine's, two of them were Anne's, and one of them was a Jane. Uh, and it, it went Catherine, Anne, Jane, Anne, Catherine, Catherine. So you don't have to remember that, but that's a pattern that uh, you, you might remember. Um, but what, what is also an interesting pattern there is uh, how these marriages ended. And it, it, they were annulled, executed, then they died, annulled, executed, and widowed. So uh, they uh, did not come to happy endings. Um, the first marriage was the longest by far. It was 24 years. The others were approximately three and a half, and then one and a half, then a half a year, and then one and a half, and then three and a half years, uh, respectively. And um, the first three issued in children, and the last three did not. So accordingly, we'll focus then on the earlier period. Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, was the daughter of the famed Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Ferdinand and Isabella were so fiercely Roman Catholic that the Pope gave them the title Catholic King and Queen. That was in 1494. They were so named in part for having instituted and implemented the Spanish Inquisition 16 years prior, in which they ordered all non-Catholics to leave Spain or convert. And because of the suspicion of false conversions, between 1480 and 1492 hundreds were imprisoned uh, and tortured and in some cases burned alive. It's also Ferdinand and Isabella who, in 1492, commissioned a certain expedition to the West by which Columbus discovered the Bahamas and Cuba and the island he called Hispaniola. This expedition and others to follow opened up a whole new world and with it an influx of wealth for Spain by which it would become the major power in Europe by the end of the 16th century. So this is an important political and historical context to keep in mind as we look at the reigns of these Tudor kings and queens. So Catherine then was born to Ferdinand and Isabella in 1485. Incidentally, that's the same year that Henry's father, Henry VII, 
took the throne of England. When she was three years old, she was betrothed to Henry's first son and heir apparent, Arthur. Uh, this formed a strategic alliance as both countries had a common enemy in France. Now, Catherine and Arthur were married in 1501 when she was 16 and he was 15, and five months later, Arthur died. So, but Henry's interests and designs had not changed, and so he moved to have the alliance solidified through the marriage of Catherine to his next son, Henry. But for this to happen, the Pope had to issue a special dispensation to allow the marriage of Henry to his brother's widow. And uh, when it's in Pope's interests, Popes like to give special dispensations. So as it was, uh, this was in his interest, and Henry and Catherine married in June of 1509, two months after Henry VII had died and Henry VIII took the throne. As I said, this marriage lasted approximately 24 years, the majority of which, for time's sake, we won't have much to say. The first eight years were prior to the beginning of the Lutheran Reformation, and the last eight years were spent with Henry desperately trying to find a way out of his marriage, a move that eventuated in the Reformation of the Church in England. Now, during this period, Henry was a devoutly Roman Catholic, and from 1517 on, he was very anti-Reformation. In those earlier years, Henry and Catherine were met with many tragedies and disappointments concerning their offspring, and for Henry particularly, uh, with regard to producing a viable male heir to the throne, which was his great interest. Uh, Catherine quickly became pregnant, but the first pregnancy resulted in a stillborn baby girl on the last day of January 1510. On the first day of January 1511, she gave birth to a son, Henry. And tragically, he died seven weeks later. There were two more stillborn children in the next couple of years, and then in 1516, Catherine gave birth to a daughter whom they named Mary. And we'll see Mary again later. Again, for reference, all this took place before anyone had heard of Martin Luther or his 95 Theses. In 1518, Mary had yet another stillborn daughter, and then a year later, one of Henry's many affairs issued in an illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, who would live only to the age of 17. And now it was in 1525 that Henry seems to first have taken interest in Anne Boleyn, the young woman in the Queen's entourage. Anne resisted the king's efforts to seduce her, but would eventually become Henry's second wife. When it became clear to Henry that Catherine was not going to produce a male heir for him, he began to look at other options to uh, secure an heir to the throne. Would he try to legitimize, legitimize uh, Fitzroy? That would be a very difficult thing. Would he maybe marry off his daughter Mary and hope that she would produce a son? Well, that would take a while. Uh, seemed to him the option then was an annulment to Catherine and, uh, Mary, and marrying Anne Boleyn. And so that was the choice he took. Uh, Henry believed that this annulment would be legitimate uh, since he had married his brother's widow. Um, Henry believed the marriage might be cursed by God for his violation uh, of, of, of canon law and hence no male heir. 
Um, but for her part, Catherine insisted that the previous marriage to the young Arthur had never been consummated, meaning that her marriage to Henry was perfectly lawful and had no need for a special papal dispensation. Now, for multiple political reasons, Henry's various diplomatic efforts and political pressure failed to secure an annulment from the Pope, so he began to take steps to separate the church in England from the Pope's authority. So beginning in 1531, we won't go into the details, but uh, there um, <clears throat> were a series of laws that were begun to be passed in Parliament, which further de which decreased the Pope's authority over the church in Rome, or church in England, and increased the king's. So Henry was making steps to break with Rome, and by 1533, England had enough independence for him to get the desired annulment and officially marry Anne Boleyn, whom he had already secretly married earlier that year. The act of succession in 1533 declared Mary to be illegitimate based on the, null of the annulment of his marriage to Catherine, and it would be Anne's children who would be next in line of succession. Now, Thomas Cranmer, uh, who had been in Germany as Henry's ambassador to the Emperor uh, Charles V, he was called back to England because he was appointed the new Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, he, upon his arrival, then validated the new marriage to Anne. And then the following year, in 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Royal Supremacy, which gave the English Church complete independence from Rome and declared Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. Now, that's a lot of time and a lot of uh, political activity to get to this point where Henry made this break with Rome. But now, while Cranmer was still traveling in Germany, he was exposed to Lutheran teaching and he witnessed the effects of the Lutheran Reformation and he was influenced enough to get married himself while there, even though it was forbidden to him as an ordained priest. And taking up his position as archbishop, he sought to bring reform to the English church. But the king had long been an opponent of Luther and his teaching. In fact, in 1521, he had published his Defense of the Seven Sacraments against Luther's work, the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, in which he promoted the two sacraments uh, that the Bible teaches. And for his defense, the Pope gave Henry the title Defender of the Faith. <clears throat> So Henry was not interested in reforming or departing from Catholic doctrine. <clears throat> so while he himself remained uh, committed to his Catholic faith, he essentially made it in English Catholicism. For Henry, it really was Catholicism without the Pope. But uh, while Henry resisted and sought in many ways to restrain the growth of Protestantism during his reign, the seeds of Protestantism were being sown and taking root while the structures of Catholicism were being dismantled. Now Cranmer knew that if he was going to keep his position and likely his life, he would have to proceed very cautiously in the direction of Reformation. But he would have increasing help. In the previous decade or more, Lutheran and other Reformation literature had made its way to the ports of England and the ideas were gaining adherence. Um, you heard about the group of men who met at Cambridge at the White Horse Inn 
discussing these things. And by the way, one of those men, Thomas Bilney, uh, had been put to death by Henry in 1531. There were also many Lollards or followers of Wycliffe that were scattered about and were eager for Reformation. Additionally, for several years now, Tyndale's New Testament, containing also an important preface to the Book of Romans, which explicated the gospel, had been smuggled into England and was being read. And further, Thomas Cromwell, the king's chief minister, had evangelical convictions. And the new Queen Anne was an active sponsor and promoter of evangelical ideas. She imported and distributed quantities, large quantities of literature, um, some of it she introduced to the king. And uh, she gained the appointments, this is important, of a number of men of evangelical convictions to important bishoprics in the church when they opened up. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Catholicism was deeply rooted and widespread among the common people as well as many of the nobles. <clears throat> and um, many of these were not happy with Henry's break from Rome. Well, it was not long before Anne became pregnant and not long thereafter that Henry was not happy with Anne. She had a girl, Elizabeth, on September 7, 1533. In his grief and wondering what all his efforts had been for, he left to visit an old courtier, Sir John Seymour, and it was there that he took notice of Jane, Seymour's daughter. In the next two years, Anne would lose two more children during pregnancy, and uh, as Henry's disfavor grew, rumors were being spread about Anne with accusations of extramarital affairs, practicing witchcraft, plotting to poison members of the royal family, so Henry had Anne arrested, and being found guilty, had her beheaded on May 19, 1536. His first wife, Catherine, had died of natural causes earlier that year, as did his illegitimate son. The next day, Henry was betrothed to Jane Seymour, and ten days later, they were married. I mentioned that Jane was Henry's favorite wife, and then this is because she bore him a son the longed-for male heir to the throne. So Edward was born on October 12, 1537. He was christened three days later, and Mary, the 21-year-old daughter of Catherine, whom he displaced in the royal succession, was ironically appointed as his godmother. <clears throat> Less than two weeks later, Jane died from complications in Edward's birth. <clears throat> now, roughly corresponding to this brief time of Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, this three and a half year period from 33 to 36, over in France and Switzerland, a young John Calvin experienced conversion, embraced Protestant teaching, fled persecution in France, wrote the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, and came to Geneva and took up his first ministry there. <clears throat> it was also in 1536 that Henry authorized the execution of the great English reformer William Tyndale in Brussels. In England, he had also executed prominent Catholic opponents, including Sir Thomas More, for treason in refusing to recognize him as the supreme head of the English church. So beginning in 1536, for political and economic reasons, Henry began to further dismantle the structures of papal influence in England, <clears throat> um, 
he was in uh, need of, of uh, some increased revenue. So what he did is he um, began to dissolve the monasteries because there were, there, was over, there, were, there were many hundreds of monasteries in England. There was much money wrapped up in it. And uh, by dismantling them, Henry um, could gain a number of advantages. One, it would destroy the seedbed of Roman teaching and influence. Two, in selling these lands to the nobility and gentry, it would put money in his coffers. And three, it would incline those in the ruling class who purchased these lands at a cheap price to gain a greater degree of loyalty to the king and his reforms rather than the Pope, thus this would prevent a way back to old-style Roman Catholicism. Um, this was also a pop popular move among many of the people um, and many of the monks and nuns who uh, ended up getting married, um, but nevertheless organized uprisings against this move led to over 200 rebels being executed in 1537. In 1538, the influence of those well-placed reformers, particularly Cranmer and Cromwell, was being felt in another way, along with Tyndale's dying prayer, when the king issued this order uh, saying, quote, you shall discourage no man from the reading or hearing of the Bible, but shall expressly provoke, stir, and exhort every person to read the same as that which is the very lively word of God. So thus, just two years after Tyndale's prayer that the Lord would open the King of England's eyes, it was decreed that English Bibles would be placed in every church. This was truly remarkable given Henry's previous stance, yet its enthusiastic acceptance caused him several years later to try to reverse that move significantly. Michael Reeves describes it this way. So great was the excitement that priests complained of how even during the sermon, lay people were reading the Bible aloud to each other. Private Bible reading became a much more widespread feature of ordinary life, as even the illiterate learned to read so as to gain immediate access to the very lively word of God. And once that happened, it was very hard to go back. Now butchers and bakers were discussing the Bible, coming to new convictions, and even daring to disagree with clergy over it. The church could no longer pontificate unchallenged. With Bible in hand, people were wanting to know where their priest got his ideas from. So we see the impact of, of the scriptures during this time, but six years later in 1543, due to concerns that Henry had about popular Bible reading, he banned all private reading of the Bible among the uneducated and all unauthorized public exposition of Scripture. And then in 1546, he also outlawed all unauthorized English translations of the Bible. So you see then this at least partial reversal of that policy. But on the other hand, Henry also prohibited Roman superstitions such as the veneration of relics and pilgrimages. Pilgrimages, excuse me. <clears throat> he called for the destruction of shrines, and he removed special holy days from the calendar. But conversely, with harsh measures, he enforced acceptance of transubstantiation and celibacy for priests, 
and he executed Protestants as heretics. So it's quite confusing uh, where Henry stands on all this. To illustrate this confusion, the events of July 30, uh, 1540 are interesting. It says what happened on that day is uh, six men were executed. Three Catholics were hanged for treason for denying Henry's supremacy over the Church of England. And three evangelicals were burned for heresy. Uh, now, Henry's break with Rome and attempt to form an English Catholicism had introduced to England forces <clears throat> that Henry could not control. Having defied papal authority and having allowed the scriptures to critique the Pope and church practice and having allowed the Bible to be read by ordinary people, it would be impossible to stop where he wanted to stop. It has been compared to throwing a man off the roof of a cathedral and commanding him to stop halfway down. It wasn't going to happen. Now, in 1540, Henry had been unmarried for two years, but would marry three more times in the next three and a half years. First to the Lutheran Anne of Cleves, which was a political marriage seeking an ally against some of the Catholic powers on the continent. This marriage was annulled for personal and political reasons within six months. Next was 19-year-old Catherine Howard of the powerful Catholic Howard family. She was executed within 18 months for adultery. And then finally, the twice-widowed Catherine Parr, a reform-minded woman who would be influential in the education of young Edward and Elizabeth and who would be widowed again when Henry died in 15 47. Now, when Henry died, young King Edward was nine years old. He and Elizabeth were brought up with committed Protestant instruction. They had the best evangelical tutors, and they truly embraced Protestantism. Edward was very smart, learning many languages. He had deeply evangelical convictions. He despised Romanism, and he was strongly committed to advancing the Reformation during his reign. Uh, given his young age, he was not able to rule directly, but he was surrounded by a council called the Privy Council, made up of 16 men, all of them evangelicals. Chief among them was the Lord Protector of the Realm, Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, who himself was deeply committed to the advancement of the Reformation in England. He was Edward's uncle, the brother of his mother, Jane Seymour. And as England's Lord Protector, he was the de facto head of state. <clears throat> With the crowning of Edward, there was a great sense of hope and expectation for those who wanted to see a thorough reformation of the church in England. At his coronation, Cranmer referred to Edward VI as the second Josiah, in reference to King Josiah in the scriptures. Now, under Somerset and Cranmer, the reformation would proceed with determined, deliberate, but careful action, not wanting to provoke unnecessary backlash or start a civil war. Uh, nevertheless, much was done in relatively short order as they overturned many of Henry's laws. Among other things, the clergy were allowed to marry, chantries where masses were held for the dead were dissolved, images of saints were removed from churches, altars for the sacrifice of mass were removed and replaced with tables for the Lord's Supper, and the people were to receive both the bread and the wine in communion where Previously, they would have received only the bread. <clears throat> Church services would be conducted in English 
and the content would be evangelical. A book of common prayer was written which would ensure evangelical fidelity and ecclesiastical consistency. Preaching would be done in English, and for clergy not adequately trained, uh, there was a book of homilies that could be read, ensuring that evangelical teaching, such as the final authority of Scripture and justification by faith alone, would be proclaimed. Now these changes, particularly the exclusive use of English in the services, brought much opposition by those who loved the old ways, but Reformation, according to the Word of God, would continue. There were many popular and powerful preachers during this time, including Hugh Latimer, Thomas Beacon, John Bradford, and John Knox. And I want to read a number of quotes from some of these men on some, uh, talking on some key Reformed doctrines. On the doctrine of predestination, Thomas Beacon said, Predestination is the secret, unchangeable appointment of God before all beginnings by His counsel and wisdom to life everlasting concerning His elect and chosen people. John Bradford said, We would certainly know that it is God which is the ruler and arbiter of all things, and that having determined all things that He will do, now of His power does in His time put the same into execution according as he has decreed with himself. Um, so, the, the doctrine of predestination was, was well understood and taught. The idea that election to salvation is all of grace and not of man's will. Uh, on this point, John Fox said, If the question be asked, why was Abraham chosen and not Nahor? Why was Jacob chosen and not Esau? Why was Moses elected and Pharaoh hardened? It cannot be answered otherwise than this, because it was so the goodwill of God. On the radical corruption and obstinate rebellion of man, Latimer, Hugh Latimer said, If we shall be judged after our own deservings, we shall be damned everlastingly. I am of myself and by myself, coming from my natural father and mother, the child of wrath, a lump of sin, and working nothing of myself but all towards hell, except I have a better help of another than I have of myself. <clears throat> that Christ's atonement was for God's elect and sufficient for them. Cranmer says, our Savior, Christ, according to the will of His eternal Father, when the time thereof was fully accomplished, taking our nature upon Him, came into the world from the high throne of His Father to give a light to them that were in darkness and the shadow of death, and to preach and to give pardon and full remission of sins to all His elected. <clears throat> Now, on the, on the certainty that all of God's elect will be converted and kept by Him, so irresistible grace and perseverance, uh, Nicholas Ridley, who was the Bishop of London and who would be martyred in 1555, says, In all ages, God has, God has had His own manner after His secret and unsearchable wisdom to use His elect 
sometimes to suffer them to drink of Christ's cup. Yet the Lord is all one toward them in both, and loveth them no less. No man can take us out of the Father's hands. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And Martin Bootser said, God's election cannot be made void by any creature whatever, seeing then that the purpose of God according to election may stand not of works but of him that calls. He not only elected his own people before they were born or had done good or evil, but even before the very foundation of the world. Hence our Lord said concerning his apostles, I pray not for the world but for them whom thou hast given me, for they are thine, that is, they were chosen by thee unto life. And then finally, on the necessity of preaching these things, John Knox said, Some do think that because the reason of man cannot attain to the understanding of how God shall be just, making in his counsel this diversity of mankind, that therefore it were better kept in silence in all such mysteries. But yet I say that the doctrine of God's eternal predestination is so necessary to the church of God that without the same, faith can neither be truly taught nor surely established. So there's a taste of what some of the, of some of what the people and the king and the nobles were hearing during this time. Now, in 1548, Archbishop Cranmer invited two major figures of the Reformation on the continent to come and assist in the work in England. The German reformer, Martin Bucer had been deeply entrenched in the Reformation events from the very beginning. In 1518, he was present at the Heidelberg Disputation with Luther, and there he became convinced in the Protestant position. In 1529, he participated in the Marburg Colloquy to seek to bring agreement between Luther and Zwingli on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. In 1530, he wrote the first Reformed Confession to be adopted, the Tetrapolitan Confession, which was adopted by four cities, uh, which was a Protestant confession with the doctrine of the Supper that was neither Lutheran nor Zwinglian. He was a co-author, along with Bullinger and others, of the first Helvetic Confession. He was the deeply influential mentor to John Calvin, especially during Calvin's three-year ministry with him in Strasbourg from 38 to 41, where Calvin was greatly helped in areas of ecclesiology related to polity, liturgy, and the sacraments, as well as dealing with ecclesiastical and civil affairs, which he would need in Geneva. Now, this wise and careful early reformer who tirelessly worked for unity among the Protestant churches, now on the invitation of Cranmer, comes to England to take up the chair of Regis Professor of Theology at Cambridge. A few months prior to this, Peter Martyr Vermeule had been invited by Cranmer to take up the Regis Professor of Theology chair at Oxford, replacing the Catholic Richard Smith. Vermeule was an Italian-born reformer, a profound scholar, who was exposed to the Reformation thought while in Italy through the writings of Martin Bucer and Ulrich Zwingli. And this was around 1537 that he was first exposed to this. And by 1542, Martyr was well established in Protestant teaching and had come to Strasbourg to work with Bucer lecturing in Old Testament in Hebrew. And then after about five years, he took up the chair at Oxford. So we have these two stalwart reformers coming to England 
to take the two most important seats at the two great schools of England to train men in the doctrine of the Reformed faith and to help Archbishop Cranmer as he writes and as he revises this, his book of common prayer for the worship of the English church. Now, Bishop Hooper said of Bootser that he was Cranmer's inseparable companion while he was there. And it was said that between Peter Martyr and Cranmer, there was a great and cordial intimacy and friendship. For of him, he made particular use in the steps he took for our Reformation. Now, uh, I had a, a couple of quotes um, by Bootser and Vermeili, but uh, I think we're going to pass by that for the sake of time. I will say this, uh, that uh, Dr. Whitaker, who was a Regis Professor of Divinity in Cambridge during the reign of Elizabeth, reflecting back, said that Peter Martyr and Martin Bootser of honorable memory did profess this doctrine of absolute and, irrespect and irrespective reprobation. So teaching not only predestination into life, but reprobation. And he says that they taught this in both of our famous universities, and our church did always hold it as the undoubted truth ever since the restitution of the gospel to her. So, um, so you see that a taste of what uh, these men taught and believed. Now, besides Ruther, uh, Bootser and Vermeili, there were other many, many other important men who came to England to advance the Reformation cause. And not only that, but during these early years, Protector Somerset and Cranmer and the king himself got much support and encouragement from reformers on the continent, such as Calvin and Bullinger. In 1548, Calvin wrote a 16-page letter to Lord Protector Somerset encouraging a thorough reform along with an eradication of Roman superstition. Um, listen to uh, Calvin in this letter. <clears throat> he says, Inasmuch as you deem me to be a servant of his son whom you desire above all else to obey, I feel assured that for the love of him you will receive with courtesy that which I write in his name, as indeed I have no other end in view save only that in following out yet more and more what you have begun, you may advance his honor until you have established his kingdom in as great perfection as it is to be looked for in the world. And he says, We have all reason to be thankful to our God and Father that he has been pleased to employ you in so excellent a work as that of setting up the purity and right order of worship in England by your means and establishing the doctrine of salvation, that it may be there faithfully proclaimed to all those who would consent to hear it. He goes on to encourage him in persevering through the uh, difficulties and struggles that attend this work. And, um, and he says, seeing, however, that Satan never ceases to upheave new conflicts, and that it is a thing in itself so difficult that nothing could be more so to cause the truth of God to have peaceable dominion among men who by nature are most prone to falsehood. While on the other hand, there are so many circumstances which prevent its having free course, and most of all, that the superstitions of Antichrist, having taken root for so long time, cannot be easily uprooted from men's hearts. You have much need, methinks, to be confirmed by holy exhortations. 
I cannot doubt indeed that you have felt this from experience and shall therefore deal all the more frankly with you because, as I hope, my deliberate opinion will correspond to your own desire. So you hear this thankful encouragement that Calvin has and this earnest exhortation to faithfully persevere in this work of reformation. He goes on to outline his primary points of concern um, and exhorts Somerset to secure that sound, qualified men would be provided in the schools, that sound and effectual preaching be practiced in the churches. He encourages the development of a confession and catechetical instruction. He calls for the complete eradication of the remnants of Roman additions and idolatries by a scripturally regulated worship. And he urges that moral renewal and discipline be maintained there in England. And uh, in regard to the content of his teaching, um, there, this portion is, uh, is very encouraging. Uh, so I want to uh, just read a bit of this. He says, As concerning the first article, I do not mean to pronounce what doctrine ought to have place. Rather, do I offer thanks to God for his goodness, that after having enlightened you in the pure knowledge of himself, he has given you wisdom and discretion to take measures that his pure truth may be preached. Praise be to God, you have not to learn what is the true faith of Christians and the doctrine which they ought to hold, seeing that by your means the true purity of the faith has been restored. That is, that we hold God alone to be the sole governor of our souls, that we hold his law to be the only rule and spiritual directory of our consciences, not serving him according to the foolish inventions of men. Also, that according to his nature, he would be worshipped in spirit and purity of heart. On the other hand, acknowledging that there is nothing but all wretchedness in ourselves and that we are corrupt in all our feelings and affections, so that our souls are the very abyss of iniquity, utter despairing of ourselves, and that having exhausted every presumption of our own wisdom, worth, or power of well-doing, we must have recourse to the fountain of every blessing, which is in Jesus Christ, accepting that which he confers on us, that is to say, the merit of his death and passion, that by this means we may be reconciled to God, that being washed in his blood, we may have no fear lest our spots prevent us from finding grace at the heavenly throne, that being assured that our sins are pardoned freely in virtue of his sacrifice, we may lean, yea, rest, upon that for assurance of our salvation, that we may be sanctified by his spirit and so consecrate ourselves to the obedience of the righteousness of God, that being strengthened by his grace, we may overcome Satan, the world, and the flesh. Finally, that being members of his body, we may never doubt that God reckons us among the number of his children and that we may confidently call upon him as our father that we may be careful to recognize and bear in mind this purpose in whatsoever is said and done in the church, namely, that being separated from the world, we should rise to heaven with our head and Savior, seeing then that God has given you grace to reestablish the knowledge of this doctrine which had so long been buried out of sight by Antichrist. I forbear from entering any further on the subject. So, you just hear Calvin pouring out um, 
just the sound, wonderful doctrine. And um, while admitting that uh, Somerset had embraced this, encouraging him all the more in his understanding of it and in taking it forward. <clears throat> um, now, uh, in 1551, Calvin dedicated his commentary on Isaiah to King Edward, uh, sending him this book along with his commentary on the general epistles, likewise dedicated, uh, along with a, a lengthy letter. Um, so the letter and the dedicatory epistles offered strong and sound admonition toward a complete reformation in England. And um, that's just an encouraging uh, thing to read if you have Calvin's commentaries or have access to those. I would encourage you to read those um, dedicatory epistles. I was going to, but we don't really have time. Um, I was going to read a portion of it. But just hearing him encouraging this young king in the work that he's undertaking for Reformation in England. Um, so this is just a taste of some of the sound counsel that was offered from so many men proven through the crucible in their work of Reformation. Um, well, uh, let's move on here. Uh, I mentioned that Cranmer produced the Book of Common Prayer to be used in the churches. Uh, there would eventually be three versions. The first two published during the reign of Edward in 49 and in 52. The first was uh, <clears throat> more cautious, uh, and less reformed, uh, eliminating things like transubstantiation and the sacrifice of mass, but utilizing wording that could be deemed acceptable uh, to Catholics. Um, a good comparison of the two is seen in the statement that's made when the bread is given in communion. In the first, you hear these words. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Now this statement is far more Lutheran than it is Reformed. And as it is, Catholics probably wouldn't have too much of a problem with it. But with the influence and input of more Reformed men in teaching, by 1552, the book says, Take and eat, take and eat this in remembrance of, that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. And so you hear that the, the first phrase is, if left alone, more Zwinglian, and then the second phrase is more Calvinistic. So you see these influences coming in. And this, of course, would be problematic for any who believe that Christ is physically present in the elements such that in taking them you're actually eating, chewing his body. Um, <clears throat> also, clearly Protestant in this book of common prayer were the prayers for deliverance from the Pope's tyranny and all of his detestable enormities, as it was put. Um, so uh, that was absent in the earlier book. Now further, in 1552, Cranmer produced the doctrinal statement, the 42 Articles, in which Calvinist thought reached its highest degree of influence um, under Elizabeth the revision would, be, uh, would, would result in the 39 articles that are still used today. So then, with the changes in the law, in the schools, in doctrine, in liturgy, and in the hearts of so many people through the work of the Word and Spirit, in a little more than six years, the Reformation 
was well advancing in England and quite promising for the future. And then Edward died July 6, 1553, just short of his 16th birthday. Edward had been sick and anticipating his death. He had one primary concern, and that was that the Reformation would continue. He knew that if his sister Mary, who was a devout Catholic, became queen, she would, do, she would undo everything that had been accomplished thus far. So what could he do? Third in line of succession to the throne was Edward's cousin, Lady Jane Grey, who was an earnest evangelical believer. So it was planned that upon Edward's death, Jane would be declared queen before Mary could do anything. But strong support for Mary as the legitimate heir outweighed the people's desire for a Protestant queen. So the plan failed, and Jane and others associated with the plot were executed, and Mary I became queen. Now you remember Mary was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish Catholic first wife of Henry. She was also the granddaughter of the great Catholic regents Ferdinand and Isabella. And until about age 16, she was heir apparent to the English throne. But with the annulment of her parents' marriage, <clears throat> she was effectively disowned. She went from heir apparent to illegitimate child, all because of Henry's separation from Rome. Further, she was made to renounce her Catholicism as well. Now that she was queen, she moved quickly to bring back the Roman Catholicism that her brother and father had undone. She brought back the heresy laws. Married clergy were separated from their wives. Evangelical bishops were removed from their positions. Bibles were removed from the churches. The mass was reinstituted. Images of saints returned. Relics brought back and papal authority declared over the church in England. But not everything could be restored. Those who purchased monastic lands would not be returning them. And more importantly, the people who had been exposed to the word of God and embraced the true gospel would not renounce it. And they were many. <clears throat> Desiring a royal heir, Mary soon wed Philip of Spain, son of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, Philip would soon become the king of Spain and would reign during its most prosperous and powerful period. He is the same king who would later launch the Spanish Armada against Mary's successor, Elizabeth. Now this marriage was not very popular among Mary's subjects. A strong Catholic, Philip despised Protestantism and many in England feared what they had heard about the Spanish Inquisition. Of those who were convinced Protestants, we can consider th three categories. There were the exiles who fled England for the continent. There were the martyrs who suffered excruciating death for the truth of the gospel. And there were those who remained in England but met in underground churches and secretly promoted Reformation doctrine while escaping the wrath of Mary. A sobering reflection on the times was given by the bold Scottish preacher John Knox on his departure from England. He said, Sometimes I have thought it impossible, sometime I had thought that impossible it had been, so to have removed my affection from the realm of Scotland, that any realm or nation could have been equal dear to me. But God I take to record in my conscience 
that the troubles present and appearing to be in the realm of England are double more dolorous unto my heart than ever were the troubles of Scotland. And Scotland and Knox had known great troubles. So there were around a thousand or so Marian exiles who left England and wound up in places like Frankfurt or Strasbourg or Calvin's Geneva or Bullinger's Zurich. John Knox spent time in most of these cities, but was especially impressed with Geneva, saying, I neither fear nor ashamed to say is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. In other places I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion so sincerely reformed I have not yet seen in any other place. So God was working powerfully in Geneva, and in Geneva he was equipping many exiles for their eventual return to England. And it was during this time that some of those exiles were involved in the production of the Geneva Bible with its notes and commentary, and which are from a distinctly Calvinistic position, the Geneva Bible became extremely popular among the Puritans in England. <clears throat> it also became the first Bible to be printed in Scotland where a law was passed that every household of sufficient means should buy one. That was required that everybody buy a Bible if you could. <clears throat> While there were about a thousand exiles, there were about 300 Protestants who escaped neither England nor the flames, but were put to death as martyrs of Christ. The story has often been told about the martyrdoms of bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and also of Archbishop Cranmer and how challenging and encouraging those are. And if you're not familiar with them, I would encourage you to look into those. But I was likewise spurred by this simple story of John Bradford, who some say was the most greatly used preacher in England during the reign of Edward VI. This was three months before Latimer and Ridley were put to death. On the 31st of January, 1555, Bradford was charged and tried and condemned to death. Bradford was taken to Newgate Prison to be burned at the stake on the 1st of July. A large crowd delayed the execution, which had been scheduled for 4 o'clock in the morning, as many who admired Bradford came to witness his death. He was chained to the stake at Smithfield with a young man, John Leaf. Before the fire was lit, he begged forgiveness of any he had wronged and offered forgiveness to those who had wronged him. Then he turned to Leaf and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. This is the same preacher we heard from earlier who said, We would certainly know that it is God which is the ruler and arbiter of all things, and that having determined all things that he will do, now of his power does in his time put the same into execution, according as he has decreed with himself. He had also said, Faith and belief in Christ is the work and gift of God given to none other than of those which be the children of God, that is, to those whom God the Father before the beginning of the world hath predestinated in Christ unto eternal life. 
And you can see why then with such confidence, courage, and comfort, he could say to his companion in suffering, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. I'll I'll get with you later on that, okay? Um, So this reign of terror under Mary mercifully came to an end on November 17, 1558, when Mary died of stomach cancer less than five years after coming to the throne. Her severe persecutions, her Roman impositions, and her Spanish connections all associated in the minds of the English people her tyranny with her Catholicism. And the bravery and steadfastness and joyful resignation of the Protestant martyrs were a lasting witness to the truth of their message. Now, we haven't discussed those who continued to meet in the underground churches in England, but we'll see as we move on to talk about the reign of Mary's successor, Elizabeth, that in many ways these private unauthorized meetings continued and were furthered when many of the exiles returned with great expectations and plans for a reformed English church like they had witnessed on the continent. And we're not going to have time to get into Elizabeth today. Um, So we'll go ahead and conclude with that unless there's any very brief questions or comments. No? Okay. Our Father, again, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Um, We're reminded again just how needful we are in every way of your mercy and of your grace to save us from ourselves and our sin. How needful we are of Christ who has given himself in life and in death for our sake. How needful we are of your spirit to enliven and enlighten and to enable our obedience. And Father, we pray that you would stir in us, your people, a deeper love for you a deeper appreciation for and commitment to declaring the gospel and a greater willingness to sacrifice whatsoever we must for the sake of your name that that the gospel would be known defended and declared and now Father as we go into our time of worship we pray Father that you would strengthen your people that you would give us a renewed faith in you a renewed love for you and one another and God that you would work by your word and by your spirit to conform us further to the likeness of Christ that we might be a people for your glory 
in this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah. I do too. Um, the relationship of Mary, she was daughter of Catherine, and Catherine was what to Ferdinand and Isabella? Catherine was Catherine was her child, so Mary was the grandchild. The grandchild. Okay. I didn't realize that. Uh, well, I do Florida history, and we've yeah. been learning all about Ferdinand and Isabella and sending the 